1: Before we start with this week's show, we want to let you know that after today, the politics guys will be taking a summer vacation. And we'll be back tan, rested, and ready to bring you new shows, including some interviews we think you'll really like on July 17th, right before what's sure to be an exciting Republican convention. And also before the show, we just recently heard some very sad news. Jay, you just told me. uh, Yeah. Um, uh,
0: George Voinovich just passed away. Uh, He was the governor of Ohio. Uh, two-term governor of Ohio, uh, two-term mayor of Cleveland uh, and uh, senator from Ohio um, uh, and and really sort of a, a giant figure in Ohio politics and someone who uh, had had a lot of influence on on my early career and uh, on my life and I think, and I think yours too Michael yeah he was I mean
1: the sort of Republican who I could very easily support even even today, I think in many ways.
0: And in fact, I recall you and I uh, working together on uh, his gubernatorial campaign, I think back in 1990. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, he is, uh, you know, and I, again, I didn't always agree with him, um, uh, but uh, he was a, a class act and a, a good person and uh, he he will be missed. And, you know, what, we can talk a little bit later on about the, you know, some of the, the uh, effects and the long lasting uh, contributions he made to um you know ohio uh, the republican party and uh, the country
1: absolutely absolutely okay um Sad news. Uh, moving on from that uh, sad news, we, uh, we'll we t- start by taking a look at the Democratic presidential nomination. Kind of sad news if you're Bernie Sanders. Uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, won big last week, scoring victories in four of the six primaries that were held, including Delegate Rich California and New Jersey. Now, Sanders, of course, had pinned all of his dwindling hopes on an upset win in California so that he could strengthen his case to Democratic superdelegates that he'd be the better general election candidate. It. But that, of course, didn't work out. Now, I should point out that Hillary Clinton hasn't yet won enough delegates to get the nomination outright. She's still 180 short of a majority. And in fact, with only the 45 delegate DC primary left on the schedule, she won't hit that magic number of 2383 all on her own. That being said, her commanding lead in unpledged delegates is more than enough to give her the nomination. Um, but again, should an indictment of Clinton come down, something that more than a few Sanders supporters are desperately hoping for, the superdelegates would still be free to desert Clinton and make Sanders their party's nominee. But uh, don't hold your breath, I'd say.
0: Would you agree, Jay? Yeah, absolutely. We, we've, this is one of the, the few things we've been right on this year. Every
1: once uh, in a while, yeah.
0: Is is that, yeah, it's going to be Clinton. Um, now, again, watch, we could be wrong and something comes out of the Justice Department next week. But... Uh no all things being equal and uh we assume that things can can uh continue on their, their current trajectory uh yeah The yeah, question will be what will the Bernie supporters do um you know there is there was uh, uh the meeting between Sanders and the president um which immediately after the meeting uh Obama endorsed Hillary right which is, I, that's I, not know, a yeah, good meeting I, yeah I, exactly i, I you know, gosh, uh, thanks, Barry. Can you can you wait just like a day or even just a couple of minutes? I mean, was, well, you know, was I, like I, Sanders wasn't wasn't like out of the office yet. <laughs>
1: you know, you know I, I want I wanted to I wanted to kind of touch on that because it, it seems to me and I think an argument could be made that it would have been better for the president to to sort of wait at least a week because there's it's it only a week to go. Before, I mean, less than a week, in fact, by the day of that meeting. And if he would have just waited, he could have said, well, the process has played itself out, and now I'm going to give myself an endorsement. I don't know that that extra five or so days makes any kind of a difference. I don't think so. And I think the, the, the classier thing to do would have been to wait until everyone voted. And I, I'm, I'm disappointed that the president didn't wait till D.C. voted before he gave his endorsement. I think that was a, that was a bad move on his part.
0: Well, I you know I think the the, the classy thing to do <laughs> again would have been <laughs> to wait before you know uh, Bernie's car had actually pulled out of the way yeah, driveway yeah. before you made the announcement. Um, uh, but uh, no, it, it also would have made sense from a you know political. St- I mean, just yeah. Again, this is this is little ground game kind of inside baseball stuff. I mean, it wouldn't have really changed things, but you get sort of two. Uh, two news hits. You know, you have one. He meets with Bernie and he talks to him and, and you make the statement of uh, how, how, what a great uh, uh, guy uh, Bernie Sanders is and how much he brings to the Democratic Party and how he's, he's uh, really brought a lot of enthusiastic uh-huh. supporters to the, the party and so forth. And um, you're glad that he's run and, and uh, you know, you're glad that you had a chance to have this meeting and talk about the future. And then a week or so later, you come out and say, "Yes, uh, but I think Hillary is still our our strongest horse."
1: Yeah, and and you can say again along with that, all of the people have voted, and you know this is a democratic decision, and you know I I support the the vote of the people. I I, I mean this is much more of an old-fashioned kind of view. But I, I kind of liked it when the president at least occasionally pretended to be slightly above the fray. That doesn't really happen so much anymore. But uh, I, I sort of miss that a little bit.
0: Right. Because well, here's, here's the thing that, again, which is uh, – just strikes me for people who, who watch or listen, and, and maybe it doesn't matter, but but think of this if this was you. Um, when, when Obama makes the announcement immediately, it tells you one of two things. Either he was going to endorse Hillary all along, sure. which is which is the obvious, I think, conclusion that most people would draw, and that the whole uh, meeting with Sanders was just sort of a charade, or two, he really was undecided. But God, after spending like an hour with Bernie Sanders, yeah, <laughs> you know, he couldn't he couldn't get out there fast enough to endorse yeah. Hillary. Um, neither one is particularly um, uh, uh, flattering if you're if you're Bernie Sanders, and it's one of the reasons I think. You know this goes to uh, a hundred other issues uh why people have trouble dealing with obama uh because sometimes he he just is has this this personal sort of uh, i don't know ham handedness or or i don't know what you'd call it um but um you know that that he you know sort of gives offense even when he maybe doesn't mean to um
1: well, certain, certainly to uh, certainly to Republicans, uh, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. I, I find him far I mean, less offensive. No, of course, no, there's, as there's no graciousness there,
0: uh, and I think you could say that there there he was even with with Bill Clinton, um, uh, and and uh, other Democrats, and right. I think he's that's just something that. You know, that's just not who he is. You know, it's and, and I don't know why someone doesn't doesn't tell him. Well, I we, think I think again, it, it's it, look in, in the grand scheme of things. It's no big deal. He was going to endorse Hillary. Sure. Uh, uh, in the end anyway, and Hillary will be the nominee in the end anyway. And yeah. um it may well be he just figured out oh, well, what the hell. Let's just get this over with. Um yeah, yeah but- I,
1: I think that the personality thing. I think that's just sort of baked into someone. You you couldn't tell George W. Bush to be you know, hey, would it be it be good if you were more eloquent or you, you know, right. just yeah. the same way you can't tell President Obama you should be a backslapping good old boy type. I mean, that's just not who he is. But it certainly does hurt him sometimes. Now, I think though that President Obama's endorsement is really going to help. Hillary Clinton, especially the fact that he's going to be stumping for her. Uh, I mean, if you take a look at, for instance, the unfavorable ratings, right now Hillary Clinton is at 56% unfavorable. President Obama is doing a lot better at 45%, which is actually, historically speaking, for presidents at this point in their second term, is really pretty good. So he's, uh, he's by all reasonable measures a fairly popular late second term president. And so I think that's going to, that should help him out. That help uh, sorry.
0: Yeah, part part of it um, in being a popular term, second president uh, is also he he gains by comparison uh, to the the other presidential contenders. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: Uh, the other thing he has largely, I don't what I mean is he's still president, so he's still in the spotlight. Uh, but he has been largely out of the spotlight uh, because either intentionally or unintentionally, the the race has dominated the news cycles. Yeah, uh, and and this is something where. And it's not just Obama. I think this this happens with most most uh, public figures. Uh, the more you're out of the limelight, sort of, the more popular you become. Yeah. Uh, at least at least in a uh, you know sort of a temporary uh, sort mm-hmm. of way. So, um, yeah, when you're not, because t- you know it's just again matter of you know the news news reports planes that crash, not those that land. Uh, so you know, so most of the time, if you're on the news, there's going to be some negativity. In it, and uh, if you're not, you sort of just get the glow of being the president. Uh, no, so when he starts campaigning for Hillary, I'm wondering if, if his popularity numbers uh, take a little bit of a hit. And I, again, I don't think anyone is going to fundamentally change their their mind about President of Obama uh, at this point in time. Um, but but his his association with Hillary uh, you know, actually at their campaigning. Um, may may bump up that uh, disapproval rating.
1: To me, here's the thing. Uh, num- the, the big thing to me is that people are, there are still millions of people in this country who are very enthusiastic about President Obama, uh, which is something that isn't necessarily as true for Hillary Clinton. Along the same lines, and maybe even, some might argue, even more important in some ways, uh, this week, Massachusetts Senator and liberal hero Elizabeth Warren endorsed Hillary Clinton. I think that's a big, important endorsement because Elizabeth Warren covers some of that same sort of ground that Bernie Sanders does with the sort of left wing of the Democratic Party. A lot of folks really wanted her to run for president. And I'm sure a lot of, uh, you know, Bernie supporters would have loved to have seen her run. And so I think that between President Obama and Elizabeth Warren, two people who Democratic voters can get legitimately excited about, that's the kind of thing that can raise enthusiasm to an extent that Hillary Clinton, who is just not a very natural campaigner can't do and so i think those are two very big and important endorsements for her.
0: yeah no I, I i i would say the elizabeth warren is the more important endorsement than the president even yeah so uh, i guess the big endorsement of
1: course will be bernie sanders when do you think that's coming what do you think he wants for it
0: um i i think he wants uh you know probably some stuff in the platform maybe some language about uh changing taxes um uh, maybe some language. Uh, I've, I've heard a DC statehood floated today. All of a sudden, that that's yeah. sort of a big that they want to get that in the Democratic platform. Um, which I don't know. Again, that's that's just sort of a little one of those. Uh, to me, uh, you know, not one of these big driving issues that's going to turn people out. But uh, I, I think Bernie's going to want more of that populist, um, anti-Wall Street uh, sort of feel. Uh, to the platform to the extent it not there already and, then, uh, and i think he'll want some sort of uh prime role uh, in the convention at, at you know a good a good speaking s- slot yeah you know so uh, from, my my sense is he'll, he he will probably endorse her at um at some point before the convention
1: no no for those for those folks who don't know, what the party platform is, is essentially uh, a, a statement of what the party believes in, the things it wants to accomplish and so forth. And uh, as a sort of a statement of principles, it's worth about what you would think a statement of principles is worth to a political party, uh, meaning that there are plenty of things in a platform that just never get addressed. So on a practical level, it doesn't necessarily mean a whole heck of a lot, but it, the idea is it it sets sort of a longer term direction uh you know some other stuff that i've heard that bernie sanders
0: it's also it's also a thing you can sort of give away uh, to um- yeah but it's not <laughs> for, worth the, the whole various lot. interest yeah. groups of you know, what, what, uh, it's like beads it, uh,
1: uh, you know, at Mardi Gras or something like that. Yeah, it's exactly. You
0: know, um, yeah, hey, you're, you're important, man. You're in the platform, yeah. whatever your, your issue is. But, but,
1: uh, but so one thing that I've heard that he might ask for, that's uh, somewhat more important in a very real practical way is some changes to the uh, delegate process, uh, maybe minimizing the role or having fewer super delegates in the process, something that would have helped him, wouldn't have gotten him the nomination. But, you know, I think that to sort of change that, there there might be a little bit of traction for that, you know, given given how things have worked out. So so I don't know, but that's the kind of thing that might be a little more practical with those sort of boring rules changes that could have an effect. Not not for Bernie Sanders, obviously, because I don't see him running again. But for whoever runs the next time, perhaps.
0: Yeah, and well, again, there's there's some I don't know I I don't know how that would would play out. Again, I guess the the party has some some issues as far as. Uh, if, if they're going to make the argument that the primary process and the de- delegate process uh, is is truly democratic, uh, they need to make uh, some changes um, but on the other hand it's it's a little like uh, uh, Willie Sutton arguing for for you know greater bank security kind right. of after the fact um, yeah. you know so for you know <laughs> I'm not sure how Hillary Clinton gets up and uh, endorses a a, a different, um delicate apportionment process after she gets the nomination
1: well i think i think um, she's in actually you could maybe say she's in a, a, a fairly a stronger position to do than anyone else because no matter what the process is, even without the superdelegates, it's almost certainly that she would be she would have been the nominee. It would have been closer. But I mean, she has more overall votes and so forth. So I think she could you know, get up and say, you know, I, I agree with Senator Sanders and this process isn't as democratic as it could be. And so even though that, you know, seems like it's an argument in favor of my opponent, that that's why I think she's the person to make it. So. Well,,
0: I think she's the person to make it because she's the kind of person who can make those arguments with a straight face, but that's that's another another story yeah. so so you know, let's let let's move on
1: and talk a little bit about Donald Trump. Uh, I'm I'm sure uh, you've heard, many of our listeners have heard that this week he announced that he actually didn't need to raise the billion dollars he said he'd raise for his campaign, claiming that his massive Twitter following and free media meant he could get by with a far leaner organization. Also, uh, he hired a new pollster, a guy named John McLaughlin, who in 2014. Predicted that former representative Eric Cantor would win his primary over Dave Blatt by 34 points. Cantor ended up losing by 12 points. So right. uh, that'll be interesting. Maybe that was just well, a one-off in, in, mistake. In
0: fairness, I think probably most everybody was was surprised by that. The sure. Cantor. Uh, issue. But that's a that's um, a pretty
1: big uh, missing by
0: 34 though is, is uh, something well, else. Well, yeah.
1: Calling for a win that. by 34 when you lose by 12, yeah, that's a pretty big gap. Um also, I wanted to mention that uh, Senator Senator Elizabeth Warren, we just talked about, she is I would say emerging as one of the fiercest critics of Donald Trump. Uh, he in return, he's taken to responding in a way that some argue is racially tinged by referring to Senator Warren as Pocahontas. Um Yeah. That's the thing that's probably the least substantive that's gotten the most coverage. So, Jay, what's the deal with the whole Pocahontas thing?
0: Well, and actually, you know, as far as the stuff Trump says, the, the Pocahontas I find to be not all that uh, not all that offensive, and it's mainly because Elizabeth Warren has sort of built herself. And this is a story that came out well, several years ago. Uh, when applying for her position at Harvard, she listed her uh, ethnicity. Uh, because apparently that is a factor that is taken into account at, at these kind of institutions as being Native American. And she's made numerous statements about her Native American roots and so forth. Uh, and and then there was some scrutiny about this. Uh, and it turns out that no one can really prove that she has any sort of Native American uh, ancestry whatsoever. Um, I've heard her also called Focahontas, which is – which I, I kind of like better. Um uh, but uh, no, I think it's sort of you know. Look, from a, a conservative standpoint, uh, first of all, I, I find it sort of abhorrent that uh, jobs are given out on the basis of who your ancestors might or might not have been. Um, uh, secondly, if, if she's out there playing that card, uh, I think she she opens herself up to it. Um, I think so. So you know, I, as as, as Trump statements go, is it is it inflammatory? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is there a, a racist tinge, perhaps? But I think that racist tinge, uh, sort of, were, sort of, was there in the first place when uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, mm-hmm. you know, basically said she is more fit to be a a professor uh, and then later, sort of, a candidate because of this uh, uh, what well, appears to be manufactured history.
1: I think you and I would disagree a, a whole lot over the extent to which she played it up. I think the conservative media played it up a lot more than she did. But that aside. That aside, I want to talk about the, the nature of, of, of Trump's comments. And I don't really think I, I agree it's inflammatory. I believe it's crude. I just, it's it's classic Trump, but it's not racist. I mean I think this word it's it, we, we throw around this word very casually and I think that's a dangerous thing to do. Racism, you know, quite simply is is you know the demonstrating or believing that you feel one race is superior or inferior to another. If you think about this comment this comment doesn't qualify. It's it's a jab at her. Sure, it's a crude, inflammatory jab at her, but it's not racist.
0: Now his well, comment—it's a jab at her her honesty and her integrity. Exactly, not, but it's, it's not. It's not. I'm. I'm putting you down because, uh, you know, you are yeah. Native American. It says nothing- I'm putting you down because you're claiming you're Native American yeah. and you're not.
1: <laughs> it's Yeah, it says nothing about the the uh, quality of the, the intelligence, the anything qualities of Native Americans versus non-Native Americans. Now, contrast that with the Judge Curiel comments, which, as Paul Ryan pointed out, is practically the definition of racism. So just because Donald Trump says something stupid and inflammatory – uh, and, and, and crude that refers to race doesn't make it necessarily racist. And I think, you know, so I'm not exactly defending him, but I think that we should be careful about how we throw around that term. That's all.
0: No, I I agree. I mean, there's, there's so much, uh, in our society right now that we, we blame on, on race or we are quick to jump to racism. Um, and it, it's just not there. It's just not. So, and, and that, uh, has the effect of of coarsening our our political dialogue on the one hand of getting more people angry and 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 it also has the the problem of it's sort of the boy who cried wolf if when you have situations where there is real real racism uh, that that needs to be um, confronted uh, sometimes that that can be sure. dismissed as oh, it's just more political correctness yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the more important story, actually, I would say, and the one that got less coverage because it's not as inflammatory, is the thing about the, the fundraising. Trump met with his fundraising his finance team this week. And, and you know, there have been a, some looks, if you kind of dig down a little bit into some of the stories, that... The argument's coming out that Donald Trump really doesn't have a campaign, at least not a campaign in the way we think about it, a big, well-oiled machine with a lot of staffers, with a lot of coordination. And, and basically, he, he would say he runs lean. Uh, but I think it's important to understand what campaigns are there to do. Campaigns exist not just to coordinate, and coordination is huge, and Trump's people have had big problems with that now that they're not running just a state-by-state campaign but running a national campaign. But campaigns are also there to discipline the candidates and to save them from themselves, and if anyone needed saving from himself – It's Donald Trump, and he doesn't really have – he hasn't built the organization around him to do that, and I I don't even think if he did, he'd listen to them. There have been numerous occasions already where he's contradicted what his campaign folks have said because Donald Trump thinks he knows best about everything, even though this is the first time he's ever run a political campaign. And this is the kind of thing I feel that's the real issue, the kind of thing that makes someone like a Hugh Hewitt, who's a very popular conservative uh, radio host, call for uh, a renewed – Last ditch effort to dump Trump. Not that that's going to happen, but this is the kind of stuff that has insiders worried. That this lack of organization is not just going to not just going to destroy him at the presidential level, but it's going to have follow-on effects all the way down the ticket.
0: Yeah, the the problem is when you when you have no discipline and and you know your <laughs> message is sort of uh, all of the above. It's easy to tag whoever you want with with whatever. You know Trump. Trump says, and I think that's going to be the strategy in the senatorial uh, races. Uh, is you know again the side by side photo of uh, Senator whoever uh, next to Donald Trump, and yeah. um, you know associating uh, guilt by association with with those folks. Um, the raising the money thing is also interesting in that uh, he's he's sort of counted on you know a couple, I guess, a month or so ago. He he got the uh, the go ahead essentially to get. Uh, 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 Republican Party funding uh, through the the uh, uh, National Republican um, Organization, uh, and it doesn't seem that he's really done much to take advantage of that. And I've also read that there's this sense that he's just sort of, I, I guess, sort of thinking that's going to take care of itself. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah he's look, he's he's got an advantage with the media, uh, free media coverage that he gets, uh, even even the, the you know it was mostly negative. And- but I, at some point, he's going to have to actually run a regular campaign, and I'll, I'll put the asterisks by that. Like I think, because look, I said that, uh, you know, way back in February, and and I was wrong. So
1: you know, a while back we talked about. Uh, at least I suggested that having shorter presidential campaigns in many ways could be a good idea. But there, there's also an, a reverse case to make, and and here here it is. I think we can see it coming out in that a presidential campaign. Uh, certainly, is about getting publicity and being in the public eye and, and, and manipulating the media, stuff that Donald Trump is wonderful at. But it's also a slog. It's doing a million difficult, hard, behind the scene things that you don't want to do, that you don't get any credit for, that aren't even close to glamorous, that you can't tweet – but that are absolutely necessary to run successfully, run and win a huge organization like a campaign. And I would argue, you could certainly could argue that that's the same sort of work you need to do when you're running the United States, when you're president. You know, it's not all publicity and photo ops and and, and staring down, you know, Putin or something like that. It's a lot of it's a lot of really hard work. And I don't oh, it know.
0: it's coordinating with various, yeah. you know, county chairmen, who who I would think in most cases Donald Trump would. You you know, very not deigned to be seen with, uh, you know, <laughs> knowing which township trustee can help you set up the organization, which organization to tap into. Uh, now, again, you have people who have people who, who do this, but uh, the, the fact is it doesn't seem that, that Trump is, is doing that. He's not tapping into that organization. And uh, I think he's going to miss out on that, that ground-level grassroots support uh, when it comes, uh, comes to November. On the other hand,
1: on the other hand, I want to point out that, you know, everyone, almost everyone no, has I'm been good wrong good. about Trump from the beginning. I know. I'm, I'm doing that. Yeah. But the thing is, is, you know, we could be totally wrong about this. Maybe. Everyone, has run, everyone who's run campaigns, major party nominees, has run them in pretty much the same way. The, the right. standard playbook that we see Hillary Clinton playing by, that we go all the way back to the beginning of modern TV campaigning. Donald Trump's doing it a very different way. And maybe... Maybe he's going to be right. Maybe this is the way to do it. Uh, so, for instance, uh, Scott Adams, you know, Scott Adams, the creator yeah, of the Dilbert. Dilbert guy. He has been a big proponent of the idea that Donald Trump's persuasive abilities and his ability to control media are so great that he predicts that Donald Trump is going to not just win, but win big. Now, I don't agree with that, just basically how partisan breakdown goes down and so forth and, you know, that no one can really win big, as in Reagan over Mondale in 1984, big where Reagan carried 49 states. That's not going right. to happen again. But I mean, you know, so I, it's certainly possible is what I'm saying is Donald Trump is rewriting the playbook. I think it's going to be a disaster. All the so-called smart people think it's going to be a disaster, but the smart people might be wrong on this. I don't know. I sure hope not.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'll tell you again, this is this is something that perplexes me uh, because – Again, everything I've been, you know, taught to, to sort of believe, uh, just just from mechanics of how a campaign works and and what works and what doesn't, and everything I've experienced uh, in how campaigns work and, and how they don't, uh, tells me that that none of this should be happening. Yeah, um, and it, that's been telling me that for all that. And, and like you said, this is what you know. And maybe I'm just part of the, the political class or something like that. I'm too blind to to see what's going on. Um, You know, it's it's one of these things where, um, you know, the the sense is that the gravity always wins, um, but but you don't know how far the plane's going to fly before gravity does finally win. You know, and I guess that's that's the case. so. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it remains to be seen. Anyway, um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we have discussed the issue of judicial recusal, where Donald Trump suggesting, you know, the judge couldn't, because he's Mexican, couldn't rule fairly and so forth. And recusal, of course, is when a judge removes himself or herself from a case due to a conflict of interest. Now, the Supreme Court actually issued an opinion on recusal this week, ruling that a judge can't hear an appeal in a death penalty case that he worked on as a prosecutor. It was a five to three split on the court with Justice Kennedy writing the opinion and the court's three true blue conservatives, that would be Justices Thomas Alito and Chief Justice Roberts, in dissent. Now, Jay, to me, this seems like a no-brainer. Of course, you can't be a judge in your own case, as Justice Kennedy put it in his opinion. So how how could three justices possibly dissent on this, do you think?
0: Well, I think they, they dissent on the basis of, is this a constitutional issue, uh, and you know, recusal for a judge—that's usually a pretty high bar. Um, it, it is unusual that that judges would recuse themselves, and, and the rules are sort of set up uh, to to sort of have recuse only in, in sort of the, the the bigger you know situations where there is an actual you know, for example, economic uh, conflict of interest. Uh, you know, a, a judge owns – uh, a significant portion of, of stock, or something like that, in a litigant's uh, company that that's before him or her, um, uh, or, or or something like that. But the idea of um, uh, the the in this case it was a, a prosecutor who was the the head prosecutor, so it uh, the the conviction was uh, you know occurred through his office, uh, but he wasn't specifically involved in it. Now, you know, my sense is. You know, the common sense thing for this judge to have done would have just been to say, "Okay, yeah, I'll recuse myself just to uh, avoid any claim of impropriety and essentially to avoid this headache." Um, but he didn't. Uh, but I, I don't. I don't see, and I, I think the the three conservatives didn't see where there was a constitutional uh, argument mm-hmm. for for recusal. Yeah, I mean- uh, at least based on the facts of the case, based based solely on. Uh, this guy was a served as a prosecutor. Yeah, I mean, were- you could you could make the argument that in that case, well, should any judge who served as a as a prosecutor? Have to recuse himself on a, a criminal case, and obviously that that right, sure. wouldn't be yeah. the case and would be untenable.
1: Yeah, there, there's um, actually so, there's, there's actually some interesting back and forth between Kennedy and Roberts and their opinions. Um, in his opinion, Justice Kennedy said that the Constitution's due process clause guarantees that no man can be a judge in his own case. And Chief Justice Roberts shot back that the majority opinion rests on proverb rather than precedent, which I thought was 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 pretty good. Um, and he also said that it's up to state authorities. Not not this court to determine whether recusal should be required. And that's directly to your point there, I think.
0: Yeah. And and because it was, this was coming out of a a state prosecution, a state case. And uh, again, each, each state and each, um, uh, you know, state bar uh, that governs the judiciary sort of sets up its own, uh, you know, rules of conduct for judges. um, And that's reflected in the case law. So I, yeah, I think this just isn't a, a, Constitutional, um, constitutional issue, and I think the the uh, from again from an absolute common sense standpoint, um, it would have been easier if he just recused himself. Um, but I, I think the uh, the minority is is correct here. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I mean, Elizabeth, I, I think I think you know again everybody's correct, uh, and I guess this is sort of the the whole uh, uh, you know difference between a lot of. Uh, conservative uh, jurists and and uh, liberal jurists yeah. is um, conservatives believe you look you can be right uh, but that doesn't mean it's it's a constitutional yeah. right uh, yeah. you know the so. And,
1: and that's something we brought up a number of times. And, and while in terms of public policy, I'm certainly on the liberal side of the fence. When it comes to the the courts, I, I tend to I tend to be a bit more conservative. And so I tend to agree with you that sometimes there are things that instances where justice is not done, where the wrong you know whatever that means the wrong result is arrived at but just because that's the case doesn't mean there's a some sort of violation of the constitution the the courts the court's role, as I see it, is not to swoop in and do justice. As as, as great as that particularly
0: counts. particularly federal court, yeah, which as, is exactly. limited jurisdiction. Yeah,
1: because and and while while people might say, well, how could you say that? It's because sometimes you know, that's great when it's my version of what I call justice is being done, but that can work against me as well. Which is why I think it's very important to be careful about how much power we give the judiciary and so yeah I, I i i'm sort of on the fence on this one but i i definitely see your point absolutely so you know let's move on to ohio uh there's all kinds of stuff going on in ohio this week that has some national ramifications uh for instance, Ohio is a state, as Jay, I'm sure you know, where Republicans control both the executive and the legislative branches at the state level. And over the past few years, Ohio has been busy passing all sorts of laws presented as vote fraud, vote, vote fraud, vote fraud prevention measures but which many Democrats, myself included, believe are actually intended to make it harder for potential Democratic voters to cast their ballots. Now, last week, a federal district court judge agreed with this interpretation. He struck down provisions of two laws that were passed in 2014 is violating the Voting Rights Act and the Constitution's Equal Protection Guarantee. These laws required voters to provide specific types of identifying information when they cast provisional ballots, and also the law said that the ballots could be thrown out for what the judge ruled were trivial errors. Um, so, Jay, what do you think about this? I mean, this is this comes on the heels of the law that, or the, the federal court ruling that overturned the, uh, or that put back, right, the golden week that... Golden week. That yeah. In- uh, maybe- for,
0: yeah, for people who aren't, aren't familiar with, with Ohio uh, voting rules, and there's no reason you should be, um, you know, Ohio has a, a mandatory ID provision, um, and uh, it also has a, a uh, vote-by-mail provision, which means anyone can who is registered can can cast an absentee ballot. Uh, it also has a vote in person and early voting where – Uh, At any time after, and I I don't know what the date is, but it's the date the absentee ballots go out, probably about a month or so before the election, you can show up at the Board of Elections and vote in person if you want. Uh, Golden Week, uh, as it's called, was uh, a a week where uh, it used to be if you went in and you were unregistered, you could register to vote, uh, but you could not vote that day. You had to wait a week for them to essentially process to see – uh, are you who you say you are, and do you live- live where you say you live uh and then you could take advantage of the early voting things uh so there was the the golden week where you could sort of walk in and say hi i 'd like to register and then just go vote, and vote. Yeah. um and and I think there are legitimate concerns about fraud there um you know you can you can go in and you cast a vote and it's it's good it's it's golden um uh, now, some of the other stuff, the provisional ballot uh, pieces of not having the right identify information, uh, I get that because sometimes that, that would seem to run contrary to what the whole point of provisional ballots uh, – you know, the whole reason we have them uh, is if someone uh, can't uh, substantiate uh, who they are or, or where they live for one reason or another uh, or that that information is unclear on the, the voting day. Uh, that they still get to vote, and then those are just sort of held held back until uh, you know the you can determine whether whether the information is correct or not. Right,
1: you know, and, and the reason I think this is important, particularly important, is if we go back to. The 2012. In 2012, President Obama won Ohio by just under 3% over Mitt Romney, whereas nationally he won by almost 4%. And Ohio is not just a swing state, a state that tends to be very close, but it has 18 electoral votes, which is the seventh most in the nation. And more importantly, the only swing swing state with more electoral votes is Florida, which has 29 of them. So, this is this is potentially a big deal if as Donald Trump has been saying, he's going to bring out more blue-collar votes and make some of these swing states even closer then, you know, a few thousand votes here or there could, could make a
0: real difference. And, and you're talking about people who may or may not be typical voters typically in the yeah. system and, and so forth. And, and the,
1: the thing to point out is that most of these voters who would vote under these provisions are voters who overwhelmingly would vote Democratic. And again, Jay and I, we, we've, we've talked about this in the past, and Jay, I know you feel that the General Assembly, it, it's a, this is an honest effort on their part to minimize vote fraud, and I uh, I I tend to believe uh, with with the judge who called this a peripatetic solution in search of a problem. And I think it's, you know, it's designed to make it harder for Democratic voters to vote. I don't think it's racist. I think it's if if, I don't think the Republicans care exactly who's voting Democrat. They just rather have not as many of them vote. But uh, I know I know you don't agree with me on that.
0: No, you know, and I will share just anecdotal. Uh, bit uh, from back in 2000, I think it was 2004, 2004, 2000, 2008, um, my wife and I found that there were four other registered voters living at our house um, and it was a pretty small place and we were su- very much surprised by that. Uh, all had the same last name as, as we did, but different first names. Uh, these people were all on the voter rolls and we, we found this out because we started getting uh, mailings from uh, or groups and organizations that we don't tr- traditionally get mailings from um, that being democratic <laughs> sure. organizations and and what happened was this was sort of in a big uh, uh, move- on push to register voters and they they have these sent these people out who they sort of pay by the name um, in Toledo sometimes they pay them by crack it's it's real case you could look that up Um so they just make up names. They pick an address and they make up names and put a bunch of other people in there. Um, but, you know, this this was – these were actual voter people who registered to vote at my address who did not exist. Uh, and it would have been easy uh, in, in during Golden Week uh, had we – had Golden Week then. I don't think it had existed. Then they had – didn't make the change yet. Um, for these people to simply say I'm registered, walk in and vote. Sure. Um You know when I when we went to the polls, uh, you know you sign your name in the book, and there were these other people there. Now I you know I went down to the board of elections, and they were very sympathetic, and we got it corrected. And uh, none of these these other four phantom people who lived with me ended up voting. But the idea that there's there's no potential for abuse or that this isn't a problem.
1: No, um, no, no.
0: Yeah, I I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's the case. I think it's real. And again, I'm I'm using my little anecdotal bit uh, as evidence. But, sure. but I have to, to think that, as, as they say, the, the plural, plural of that anecdote is uh, data. Well, actually,
1: at least for, for political scientists and social scientists, we'd say that the plural of anecdote actually isn't data. But that, I guess my point is, or let me be clear, is that I absolutely agree with you that these things happen. There's no question in my mind that there is a certain amount of vote fraud in various ways. It's not zero, and it's not Totally insignificant. Uh, but my argument is always that you have to weigh the potential for vote fraud against shutting people out of the process. And I think reasonable people can come to different conclusions about that. You know, how important is it to get that extra one tenth of 1% for vote fraud if it means that? A whole lot more people aren 't going to be able to vote because it gives them a
0: uh, you know a higher burden so again and, and my my rejoinder would be that uh, do you want people to have the the feeling of participating in the democracy or or actually sure. participating and because think, if you allow yeah. fraudulent voting, you are essentially canceling out. Uh, the votes of, of uh, legitimate registered Ab- voters.
1: Absolutely. And and I guess my my reply to that would be that, well, in the sense you cancel out other – well, you cancel out votes by not allowing or you, you – I guess you maximize the importance. See, but of you don't cancel votes. out. You but don't you're right. cancel out. It's not canceling. Because yeah, they're it's,
0: subject just to the same, same uh, restrictions yeah, and I know. the same sure. burdens as everyone else.
1: But the th- and that's, that's the thing though is that those burdens are greater on some people. For me, so those hard. burdens – well, you know, for it's easy for you to say, but for some people it is a lot harder. For people who don't have access, easy access to transportation, for people who have job and, and and childcare requirements and don't, you know, don't have the kind of cushy lives that you and I have. So no, and I think that I think that is a legitimate concern, but again, I know that we just have kind of a fundamental disagreement on this issue. So, and it's okay that, you know, you're you're wrong on some of these things and I don't have to push you that hard.
0: Oh, all right. We'll, okay. we'll, we'll leave the voter fraud stuff for, <laughs> okay. for, for later days. We'll, have, we'll okay. have more to talk about when we get to November. Oh, my
1: God. I'm sure we will. Yeah. Also, this week in Ohio, I wanted to mention that governor and former presidential contender John Kasich signed a bill making Ohio the 25th state to legalize marijuana, which in, yeah. this is the latest action in a growing tide of pro marijuana legal legislation in the United States in the last just six years. Thirteen states have either decriminalized or legalized marijuana. So this I think is a big deal and I think Ohio is an example of – and I'm not just trying to be Ohio biased but of a state doing it right. This wasn't an anything-goes kind of law and I, you know, I think people have legitimate concerns about just making it legal for anyone to smoke. I get that.
0: Yeah, and, and in fact this was very much an effort by the legislature to prevent more of an anything-goes kind of law. Um, But there was uh, an initiative,
1: right, who that was going to be on the ballot or people were gathering signatures, right?
0: Yeah, it it was uh, on the ballot. They had achieved enough signatures for the ballot. uh, And this was going to be sort of the second uh, uh, marijuana ballot issue. We had one two years ago that failed um, largely because it it had to do with the monopolization of who could grow and who couldn't. Um, But if you look at some states which has uh, medical marijuana and, and California, I'm looking at you uh there's there's a sort uh, uh again lo- looseness uh, about the the medical necessity um that you you need to have to to get marijuana um, I mean, You can take a walk down venice beach uh, and sort of see the the various uh pharmacies uh and, and I think that's what Ohio was trying to avoid uh, so it is it is stricter in terms of uh, it's not going to be just the the uh, uh the sort of clinics uh where one can walk in and and tell them their ailment and walk out with marijuana uh it, it's going there's going to be more strict supervision uh as as i understand you're going to have to have uh some sort of actual you know prescription from an actual uh, you know medical provider there are uh sort of a list of um uh symptoms or or, or uh conditions that can be treated uh, it's not simply the you know sometimes I get headaches um, right. you know and that that sort of thing that that, that you can make the claim for uh, and, and a lot of pro pot people are are upset uh, about this um, and you know look we'll I get it um, uh, but um, no I mean in, in, this is probably the most you know, conservative mar- mar- marijuana legalization that you're you're going to see. So
1: yeah, well, it's it's kind of a you know a swing state kind of Midwest sort of medical marijuana law, I would think. You know, because if you take a look at if you take a look at where. Uh, marijuana has been legalized or decriminalized it certainly the two biggest pockets of it are on the west coast and on the kind of eastern you know northeastern states uh, eastern seaboard which kind of makes sense those are the most liberal areas of the country and the one area where you see almost no pot legalization is the is the south which is one of the most but interestingly I was, I was curious about that. I did a little digging, and it turns out that something like six of the top ten marijuana-growing states in the country are actually in the South. So they grow it a whole lot, but they're just not allowed to smoke it legally. It's a, uh,
0: generally reputed to be the number one cash crop in Kentucky, at least by some folks. So, uh, Well, so Ath- Athens County, Ohio, I think, is also uh, pretty, pretty high up on that list, I'd imagine. So, but.
1: so I think what, what needs to happen next, what I'm hoping will happen next, though, it's going to take quite a while, is one thing that's really holding this movement back is, uh, is some crazy federal laws that were passed many, many, well, now at this point, generations ago, that uh, classify marijuana as just as dangerous as heroin. For instance. Um, and it's a lot of these classifications have made it very difficult for researchers to do, you know, decent, high quality scientific medical research on marijuana, which is really kind of holding it back. And I think, you know, a case can be made to you, you, we really should loosen these restrictions so that some research can be done so we can get better evidence as to whether or not marijuana actually works in cases where other drugs don't seem to work. And I think that would be a step in the right direction, though I don't really see Congress, which oftentimes is dominated by Southern Republicans. Uh, I don't think they're really going to move forward on that, unfortunately.
0: No, I, I, I'd, I'd tell you that prop. I mean, this is a discussion from another day because we're sort of running out of time today, but uh, I would think that the whole medical marijuana and I put them putting that in air quotes uh, industry is sort of the last thing they really want to see is uh, more research um, because when you talk about research in pharmaceuticals, you talk about things like uh, uh, testing and purity of samples and dosage sizes and delivery and so forth. Um, and, you know, so for example, if you could come up with a pill that would uh, – give you all the, the benefits of medical, mar- medical marijuana. Do you think that the folks who are medical marijuana proponents would be for it? No. I mean, a lot of them would No, they would not. They would not. And I think that's, that's really the, the answer you've got right there. Well, here's
1: so, the thing. There are two groups. There's the, there's the small group that will relatively small group that is looking for relief from legitimate medical conditions and have not been able to find it through st- standard means. Then there is yes. the much, much larger group that wants to get high legally. You know? <laughs> exactly. And, and so yeah, that's, I think that's, and that's my
0: point is, yeah. is the research into one will would sort of be to the detriment of that larger group, yeah,
1: and I think that would be a good thing, so I hope that that happens one day, so anyway, um yeah, you're right, we are kind of out of time, and again, I guess we we should close. we have a couple of Ohio stories to our, our condolences to the Voinovich family, the passing of a a, a great figure, a great man and this is
0: and again, this is kind of point for personal privilege, um yeah, my wife worked for uh, Governor Voinovich. Uh, when he was governor, both in the department and uh, then in his office. Uh, I, I actually uh, saw, and I still call him Governor voinovich uh, just a week or so ago because uh, his uh, granddaughter attends the same school as uh, one of my daughters, uh, and he was there for their fifth grade graduation. Um, and that gives you sort of, again, the, the kind of indication of the kind of guy he was. Uh, he was very uh, uh, down-to-earth, um, uh Man, man of the people, and 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 not in, in a put on way. He grew up in sort of a you know, um, what's now what's now sort of become a sort of a gentrified area of Cleveland, but it wasn't when he grew up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, he rose through the ranks and and did some impressive things as a Republican in uh, Democrat dominated uh, uh, Cuyahoga County. Uh, he was instrumental in uh, really bringing a lot of of ethnic votes uh, uh, to the Republican Party, especially in the the 80s and the Reagan years and that's those are the years when when uh, he was mayor of Cleveland uh, and he did a lot for uh, for our city um, turning it around uh, setting the stage for uh, for where we are now where we're going to be hosting a convention Um, uh, we won a national minor minor league hockey championship also last night and uh, God willing uh, may have a a um, a uh nba championship
1: that would um, that would take a miracle but yeah that would uh, take a
0: miracle but uh but you got to believe there you go and uh so and, anyway i again i i'm i'm you know saddened but also want to celebrate uh sort of his life and the, the and, and again not even just all the policy positions but really the kind of kind of person he was um absolutely so. absolutely anyway.
1: All right. Well, that is it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or any questions for our Ask the Politics Guys show, which comes out on Wednesdays, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news articles all week, and where you can join in, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would really appreciate it if you could take just a minute, rate the show, write a quick review Finally, if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two, the price of a copy of the Berenstain Bears and the Truth, maybe I should get a copy of that for Donald Trump, would really (laughs) help. (laughs) Yeah, you'll find find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com. As I mentioned at the top of the show, after today, we are taking our summer break, but the Politics Guys will be back on Sunday, July 17th, the day before the Republican National Convention in Cleveland.